Well, you can turn your Bibles, if you still have them open, to Amos. If you close them and put them away, make sure you open up there again. As uh, Pastor Wayne read for us, we're going to be looking just at an overview of the book of Amos this morning. It's been an interesting week to be a a pastor in Wetaskiwin, and we've uh, already told you why. Some of the events that happened in, in churches this week here in our town. Usually churches kind of exist in this town, I assume, without much publicity. They just kind of go about doing what they have been called to do. But this week, churches have been under the microscope a little bit more. So the things that have happened this week have, have really served to cause us, cause me to think more about churches and, and church buildings and security and, and even the possibility of, of harm being done to our facility. It's made us ask ourselves, why are we here? What's the purpose of the church anyways? What's our purpose in this community? Is our church really defined by a building? Or is there some other purpose? We've also been asked various times this week if we are concerned about our safety or about the safety of this building. Those are all interesting questions to ponder, aren't they? They're questions that we don't normally think a whole lot about until we face some sort of threat, or perceived threat at least. What makes the timing of all this even more interesting for us is that we are about to celebrate 80 years as a congregation, and we're about to celebrate the the dedication of this new worship center and this new building, this new church. All these circumstances make it a make it a good time to ask questions regarding our reason for existing and regarding the purpose of this church. Now, I'm not even going to attempt to give you an exhaustive answer for the existence of the church today. But as we continue our overview, and we're just really walking through one minor prophet at a time, so it's really just an overview of the minor prophets, the prophet Amos does warn us about what we should not be as a church, but also what we should not be as the people that make up the church. What is our purpose? Where is our focus? When, when people look at the church from outside, as various people did this week, as the media did this week, what would they see? Those are some of the kinds of questions that Amos addresses. Now we have to remember that Amos was a prophet. And when we think of prophets, we kind of think of these kind of strange guys that thunder forth words of doom and gloom for the people. And they are God's voice of judgment to Israel. And and while that's not totally and, and probably ultimately true, you know, the prophets also include words of God's grace and they, they include opportunities of repentance. It is in fact accurate that a large majority of prophecies or of the prophecy that we read about in Scripture, involve warnings of impending judgment. And that's especially true here in Amos. Much of the book is taken up with that. Now, just for a bit of background, Amos prophesied, you can see there in in chapter 1, verse 1, about Israel. It says, he had visions, he envisioned and visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now Israel, you remember, was the name of the northern kingdom 
after the reign of Solomon, when the United Kingdom of, of Israel divided into Judah in the south and Israel in the north. Now, both of these nations had a king. In Amos' time, Uzziah was the king of Judah, and Jeroboam, actually the second Jeroboam that came along, was the king of Israel. And they both had very long reigns. So it was a time of stability. And Amos primarily prophesies concerning the northern kingdom. Now Amos also shows up at a time when Israel is very well off. This all happens right around 750 years before Christ. And during that time, Israel, like I said, they had stable government. And with that stability came tremendous wealth and prosperity. And Israel took that prosperity as a sign of God's blessing. So let me point out again the fact that there are some very close parallels here to our own time. We too live in a prosperous country. As a local church, we are located in a town, in a province, in a country with a stable, democratic government. And we can all affirm that we are relatively wealthy and prosperous. When we leave our building in just a little while into our soggy parking lot, we'll get into probably about a a million dollars worth of cars, at least, and drive, and then we'll get into those cars and drive to probably $10 million worth of homes. And we would probably describe ourselves as a a middle-class church. And so here's the danger. We, too, can begin to think that these blessings must mean we're in the center of God's will. Even more dangerous, we can begin to think that we actually deserve this. That somehow we are entitled to these blessings. And the upshot of that kind of attitude is that we start to turn inward. We become self-focused. And we forget the purpose for which we exist as the people of God. So that's kind of what happens in Amos. All that to say that Amos has some timely warnings for us as well. Prosperity is not ultimately a sign of God's blessing. Yes, we do need to attribute everything we have to God and his abundant blessings, as we sang about a little while ago. But God is interested in what we do with those blessings. And he's ultimately interested in in our hearts. How do our hearts outwardly show that we have been redeemed? How do we as a church give evidence that we are the company, the church of the redeemed? Amos speaks to Israel and to us in the language of warnings. He's breaking into that complacent, materialistic culture as God's voice of judgment. Look at how it describes God there in chapter 1, verse 2. First thing he says, he said, the Lord roars from Zion. Or in chapter 3, verse 8, a lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Into that nation. A nation that thinks they're just doing fine on their own. A nation that had become self-sufficient enters the lion. God himself shows up, and he shows up not as a lamb, but as a lion. And he shows up not in, not in some sort of stealth and secret, but he shows up with a roar. They won't be able to help 
now, but pay attention to this lion. And the one thing that it appears Amos is coming to warn them about is a wrong kind of contentment. We talked about a right kind of contentment last Sunday. This is a wrong kind of contentment, a contentment that leads to complacency. And the root of that complacency is pride, arrogance. And that pride shows up here in the form of self-indulgence. They had become self-indulgent, and that was a problem. Caused the lion to come out. You see those themes over and over again in these eight chapters. And that's going to be doing a lot of jumping around today. But if you look in chapter 6, verse 1, it's kind of where I get that, where I kind of got the title for the message as well. Woe to those who are at ease. If you have the New International Version, it says complacent. Woe to those who are at complacent in Zion. Or chapter 6, verse 8, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and detest the citadels. Over in chapter 8, verse 7, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. And how does this pride show up? It shows up in their focus on themselves and in their own comforts and in the way they indulge themselves. Chapter 5, verse 11, you see that they have built houses, it's the portion that we read, houses of well-hewn stone. Now most of the houses that day were, were just made of mud and brick kind of mixed together. Only the upper class could build stone mansions. And so we start to see that the rich are indulging themselves while others live in, pro- in poverty. Chapter 4 pictures these people as a bunch of women who are high up on their mountain perches, relaxing. Look what it says there in chapter 4. Who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. Now, I know in this day of gender sensitivity, we don't want to comment too much on that. But this practice is condemned here because it's a reversal of God's order. It's a picture of self-indulgence. The most thorough picture of this pride and self-indulgence, again, is in chapter 6. Look at verses 4 to 7. Read the beginning of that. Look down at verses 4 to 7. Those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who improvise to the sound of the harp and, like David, have composed songs for themselves, who drink wine from sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils, Yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will now go into exile, at the head of the exiles. And the sprawlers' banqueting will pass away. These are your ancient day couch potatoes. People who have indulged in so much of the choicest foods that they're sprawled on their comfortable beds and are being pampered by the finest oils. God condemns them there in verses 7 and 8. It's these people, God says, who will be the first into exile. You think you're above everyone else, he's saying? Well, you'll also be the first to go. You'll be at the head of the line in judgment, too. And then in verse 8, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob. That's God's evaluation of self-indulgement. And that's self-indulgence. And so that's kind of the scene here in Amos. Well, before we go on to just kind of look down on these people and wonder how they could do that, we need to ask ourselves whether we should listen to these warnings. And I'll tell you, 
Just for myself, I was convicted this week. I came up short. As I noticed what self-indulgence produces in a person or in a nation or in a church, I saw myself. As we think about who we are and why we are here, we need to hear this warning lest we face the judgment of God. Now I'm sure when Amos started prophesying, the people thought they were doing okay. After all, if you start reading from chapter 1 as Amos starts talking and and most of chapter 2, he's speaking judgment against other nations. You see it there in in chapter 1 verse 3. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke its punishment. It's Damascus. The same line is repeated in verse 6 to another nation. And then again in verse 9, in verse 11, in verse 13, in chapter 2, verse 1. I can see Israel saying, you tell them, God. You know, let them have it. But then in chapter 2, verse 4, it's Judah. Same line. In chapter 2, verse 6, it's Israel. Now Amos is starting to meddle. This is starting to hit too close to home. James Boyce says this is carefully constructed by Amos so the judgment net slowly closes around the very people to whom Amos is speaking. We do the same thing, don't we? We hear warnings or we hear sermons and we say, boy, I sure hope so-and-so is listening to this. This is exactly what he needs to hear. Or this is what the world needs to hear. You tell him. But all of a sudden we realize, wait a minute, this is talking about me. This is talking about us. Well, that's what Amos does here. The net, the noose slowly starts to get tighter and tighter. Starts with other nations, but then he moves closer and closer. And by the middle of chapter 2, and for the rest of the eight chapters, Amos is pointing directly at God's people. In chapter 3, he lays it right out there. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of earth. Of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. It's his chosen people who are more accountable and it's his chosen people to whom judgment is coming. And so we want to be careful today to listen to these warnings. And so here are three warnings about self-indulgence, about self-absorption from the text by which you can test yourself, by which we can test our church to see whether we might be in the crosshairs of God's warning here in Amos. First one is that self-indulgence breeds a false sense of security. That was the big question this week for our church, wasn't it? We have a security system, but I'm not sure that we've ever thought we would actually need it. Yet we now realize that maybe we did have a false sense of security. We're glad we have one in place and we're protected to some extent, but although even that system is not totally foolproof either. And Amos tells these people, people that think that they are untouchable, that they are not beyond the reach of God. We already looked at this a little bit in chapter 6, but look again at verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, the distinguished men 
of the foremost nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Now Samaria was the capital city of Israel and it was way up high on a mountain and had a huge fortress around it. There was actually only one way up and it was a winding road. Seemingly secure. Protected. But God says, you're not as secure as you think. Look down at verse 11. Behold, the Lord is going to command that the great house, this great house that you thought you had, will be smashed to pieces. Even snowbirds are targeted in Amos. Did you catch that? You probably didn't. I haven't gone to chapter 3 yet. But they can't escape God's judgment either. Look at chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. It says, I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house. There's no escape. We can sometimes think we're secure as well. After all, we're Canadian. We're Albertans. Oh, we can put our chest out and say, hey, we're from the richest province, a great country. Or we go to church. You know, we are evangelical. We must be immune from God's judgment. Well, that's what Israel thought too. Yet as we saw in chapter 3, great privilege meant great accountability. I like the way Mark Dever puts it. He says, if you're ever tempted to think that attending church removes the threat of God's judgment... Allow me to suggest that a church is a lousy place to hide from God. He will find you wherever you are. He will certainly find you in his church. End quote. So lest we think our self-indulgence shields us from God, let us be warned. All our riches, all our insurance policies, all the things that we can accumulate will not make us secure. All they do is give us a false sense of security. You might be able to shield yourself from harm on this earth to, to some extent, but you can't shield yourself from God's judgment. There's no place to hide. Not now, not later when the final judgment comes. In Revelation 6, it talks about how people will be crying out, begging to be hidden. It says, from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And then they ask on that day, who can stand? Well, the answer to that is that the only ones that can stand are the ones who hide in Christ. The ones who seek their security only in one place, only in one person. The one that took the wrath of God in our place on the cross. The things that you have secured for yourself won't cut it then. Only in someone else, only in Christ, can you be sheltered from judgment. Well, the second danger... Amos points out for those of us that are tangled in this web of pride and, and self-indulgence that we might not even be aware of is that self-indulgence exposes a lack of compassion for the poor and the needy. This is probably the most oft-repeated theme in Amos. As these people accumulated possessions and comfort and excess for themselves, it came at the expense of the poor. The righteous, the needy, and the poor get abused. Social injustice is everywhere. In chapter 2, verse 6, it says, They sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Chapter 4, verse 1, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. Chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, You trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him. You distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the courts. Over and over again, we see this in Amos. It was a time of peace and prosperity. But while the leaders 
And the people of Israel are fattening themselves up with better food, more possessions, greater comforts, more stuff. The poor and the needy are getting neglected and oppressed and crushed. This is a huge issue, brothers and sisters. This is a big deal in Amos. It's a big deal throughout the Bible. And it's a big deal for us. The danger for us as people, as a church, is clear. When we get focused inward, when we focus on our programs, on meeting our own needs, on our church building, there's a very real danger of of ignoring what's going on around us, outside these walls. And God's warning for us is a serious one. The most daunting warning is at the end of chapter 4. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. God will not stand for the poor and for the needy to be neglected. See, God always cares for the poor all through the Bible. He's set that up right from the beginning. When he gave the law for the nation of Israel, there was always a provision for the poor and a warning of severe judgment when the poor were neglected. You don't need to turn to these passages, but just listen to them. Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns, in your land, in which the Lord your God is giving you, You shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your poor brother. But you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him, sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Isaiah 3. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor? Declares the Lord God of hosts. Moreover, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are proud, it's the pride coming in again, and walk with their heads held high and with seductive eyes, and go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles on their feet. Therefore the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. He goes on to say some very nasty things in the rest of that chapter. Ezekiel 16, 49-50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her sisters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and the needy. We often think that it was, you know, this kind of degrading homosexuality that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah that destroyed them. But here it tells us that wasn't only that. It was all that stuff, but it was, the root of it was pride. And that pride worked itself out in not helping the poor and the needy. That's the Old Testament. You go to the New Testament. Luke 6, Jesus' words, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then just four, four, chapter, four verses later, But woe to you who are rich, For you are receiving your comfort in full. You're getting your comfort now. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And the most indicting one is the story Jesus told about the rich man and poor Lazarus in Luke 16. Here there are eternal consequences now. You remember that one, right? In life, the poor man was at the rich man's gate. He was longing to be fed, just even with the rich man's crumbs. Dogs were licking at his sores as he was at the gate there, the rich man. But after they die, we find the rich man tormented in Hades while the poor man is being comforted now in Abraham's bosom. Seemingly here, because of the way he treated the poor man, the rich man is in eternal agony while the poor man is in heaven. If we neglect the poor, eternity might be at stake. If we indulge ourselves in this life, Luke 6 says, you are receiving your comfort in full. 
David Platt puts it very clearly. For those who indulge themselves and neglect their poor, listen to what he says, earth will be their heaven and eternity will be their hell. Now, I need to cut in here because I can already hear the objections. You say, you know, salvation does not depend on how we treat the poor. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And I want to stand here and totally affirm that. I want to be clear on that. Make sure you hear it. But these warnings are there for the purpose of examining ourselves to see whether we really are Christians. If we really are who we say we are, then we will not neglect the poor. We will care for the orphan and the widow and for the poor and for the needy. Which all leads us to ask, what's going on with God? Why is he so concerned for the poor? Why does God want his people to care for the poor and the needy? Well, even though it's not a salvation issue, even though our care for the poor does not ultimately save us, let me just say that it is a gospel issue. Jesus was very clear on that. In Luke 4.18, he tells us why he came, the purpose for which he came. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden. Now ask yourself, in that passage, who are the poor? Has Jesus just, co- just come to preach the gospel to those who have ma- material poverty? Is that the only kind of people he has in mind that should hear the good news? No. He's come to preach the good news to rich and poor, the upper class and the middle class and the lower class. And so the poor must be referring to more than just material poverty. I believe it's referring to spiritual poverty. Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. That's who Christ came for. The ones that see themselves as being spiritually without the riches that they need for eternal life. Those that are spiritually destitute and poor and bankrupt. If you look at it in that sense, everyone is poor. We all desperately need the riches of God which come to us in the person of Christ. 2 Corinthians actually says that God became poor so that we could receive the riches of God. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich in heaven, in glory, yet for your sake, He became poor. That you, through his poverty, might become rich. Why do we need to care for the poor? Not because we are motivated by guilt, but because we are motivated by the gospel. Christ became poor. He left the riches of heaven and became one of us. Why? So that we would no longer become poor, would no longer be poor. We are poor in our sin, but Christ did not sin. He obeyed God's law to absolute perfection. Not one mistake, not one lie, not one act of stealing, not one time where he committed adultery in his heart. And it's through those riches and by repenting of our sins and trusting in that sinlessness of Christ and his death on the cross as a substitute for our sins that we go from a place of poverty to receiving an eternal, unfading, 
inheritance from God. And now, an appropriate response to our becoming spiritually rich is to care for the materially poor. We should care for the needy as a reflection of the gospel, as a reflection of what God has done for us in bringing us out of poverty into tremendous eternal wealth. So as Christians, as a church, let's examine our actions. If we give off an aura of self-indulgence, if, if our lives, if our programs, if the pride we take in this building reek of caring for us, of looking inward to ourselves before we look out at others, let's be quick to repent of that. Let's humble ourselves. Let's give ourselves to care for the poor and for the needy. I think in, in many ways we already do very well at that. I'm thrilled when I hear that some of you helped with neighbor outreach last Monday for the Thanksgiving meal. Excellent. You've understood the gospel well. And I'm thrilled when I hear about how this church responds to Operation Christmas Child. Tremendous response that we have. And for initiatives to Bangladesh, we see in your bulletin today and other projects around the world. There's always room for improvement. As we dedicate our new building, it would be good also to rededicate ourselves to focus outward, to double our efforts to care for the poor. And we do that because of Christ as a reflection of what the gospel has done for us. Well, finally and, and quickly, we see in Amos that not only does self-indulgence breed a false sense of security and neglect of the poor, self-indulgence also tunes out the word of God. The nation of Israel in their pride and in their arrogance, in their self-absorption, turn a deaf ear toward the voice of God. In chapter 4, we see very clearly that the people were so into themselves that they ignored God's warnings. Look at verse 6, Amos 4, verse 6. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your, your places, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. And that last line, yet you have not returned to me, is repeated in verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11. God had warned them over and over again, yet what did they do? They ignored God's warnings. They were so caught up in themselves, so wrapped up in their own comforts, that they didn't even notice what God was doing. And that's when God finally says, prepare to meet your God. Can't ignore me anymore. Comes a time when they won't be able to silence his voice. And then in chapter 7, we get our only glimpse of Amos the man. There's a corrupt priest there in Bethel named Amaziah who doesn't like what Amos has to say. And by not liking what Amos has to say, he doesn't like what God has to say. And so what does he do? He tells Amos to get away from him. Get away from me. Go, you seer, he says there in verse 12. Flee away to the land of Judah and there do your prophesying. I don't want to hear from you over here. You go somewhere else. Prophesy over there. Well, that's a natural outcome of self-indulgent life. Self-indulgent person either ignores God's warnings or when he does hear them, he wants to tune them out. Now again, we should expect that that sort of ignorance from people who are opposed to the gospel. After all, the natural man does not accept the things of God, for they are foolishness to him. But remember, he's speaking here to the religious, speaking to Israel, to his chosen ones. They are the ones who are rejecting the law he gave to them. 
See that in chapter 2, verse 4. They are rejecting God's prophets. They are rejecting God's word. Friends, this is a warning for all of us who live in this this me-centered, indulgent culture. Yet we also attend this church and, and profess to be believers. How do you treat the voice of God? How do you treat his word? Do you try to follow it as your guide for all of life? Even though it may, may ask you to make some changes in your life and to do some hard things? Or do you pick and choose the parts that fit into your lifestyle and conveniently ignore those parts that might meddle with or interrupt the lifestyle that you enjoy? Don't listen to the, word, to the world. Listen to God as he speaks through his word. And the results of ignoring, ignoring God's word are disastrous. Look at chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they won't find it. If you go on too long ignoring God, the warning here is there will be a time when you can't hear it anymore. Your conscience will be seared. You won't even be able to hear God speak. And then you're on your own. Don't let that happen. Listen to God's warnings. Repent. Turn to God. So once again, the call here is to examine yourself. Examine your life. Are you so wrapped up in the quest to climb the corporate ladder? In the seemingly never satisfying goal of amassing more stuff? In trying to get to the place where you have a a comfortable lifestyle that you don't even hear the word of God? Friend, think seriously about what you do with God's word. Well, Amos is a good warning for our times. We might think that we're not the targets here, but we are. Our culture teaches us, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly, to to accumulate, to, to get more, to hoard, to buy, to pamper ourselves. You deserve a break. To to find ourselves, to seek after your best life now, to indulge. This is a warning to be careful. Make sure you hear Amos' warning about self-indulgence. Make sure you take Jesus' words to heart when he tells us what a believer really looks like. Instead of finding ourselves, do you remember what Jesus says? Instead of indulging ourselves, Jesus says that those who want to follow God must do what to themselves? Deny themselves to take up cross. That verse basically means that you must be done with self, that you want nothing at all to do with your Sinful self, because you see it as sinful. It's corrupt. You want nothing to do with your longings and your desires, and you want to follow God completely. That's a tough message in our world. But that's our calling as disciples. And we can know that it's worth it. If you're here today, and, and you're maybe one who wouldn't call yourself a follower of God, and you hear this and say, oh, This is me. This is my life. This is describing me. Or you may be here and you might have 
thought you were a Christian, that you were safe from judgment. But as you've listened, you've realized that you've neglected the poor and needy. And needy. You're, you're, you've, you've tuned out God's word. You might fear that you actually are in danger of judgment. And I want to assure you that while you might fear that, and while it might be a good fear, there is still hope for you. While judgment is certain for all of us, Amos ends chapter 9 with a hope of restoration for Israel. And there's hope for you too. And that hope is found in Jesus Christ. While we are all guilty, because we have all rejected God's law, and while we all deserve God's righteous judgment for our sins, God in his love and in his kindness, his mercy, his grace, sent his son into the world. And Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived. And then he died on the cross for our sins. On that cross, he took the punishment for the sins of all those who would turn and who would trust in him. And so God invites you today to repent of your sins and to believe in Christ. And if you find yourself in that position, find me around the back. I'd love to talk to you about that. If you want to find out more about what that means, please make sure you find me. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the warnings of your word. Your word encourages us so many times, but it also warns us. And we are grateful for those warnings. We thank you that you have appeared to us this morning as the lion. Even though those warnings might make us uncomfortable, Lord, we realize that we need to hear them, especially in the times in which we live. Lord, we pray that we as a church pray that as your people would not turn in towards ourselves, that we would not be satisfied with what we have accomplished, but that we would glory in what you have accomplished in us through Christ, and that that truth would cause us to turn outward toward others, giving ourselves to the poor and to the needy. Help us to to follow Christ and to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim release from sin to the captives, to pray that you might give sight to the spiritually blind. We ask that you would empower us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.